Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi there and welcome to this episode of Cross Section. Firstly, you might have been wondering where the Cross Section episode was last week. Unfortunately, we had some tech and Wi-Fi failures, which meant after recording a truly excellent episode, our producer, Chris, found a totally scrambled bit of audio, words in the wrong order, which meant that we couldn't release the last episode. But hey, time spent chatting with Danny and Peter certainly couldn't be called wasted. This week, I'm joined by Peter Linus and Alicia Edmund as we tackle some of the biggest stories of the week and ask what difference does being a Christian make as we process what's going on in the world around us? This week, headlines have been dominated by train strikes, the Glastonbury Music Festival and a tragic earthquake earthquake hitting Afghanistan. So let's dive in, shall we? We're all for nuance on the show, so I'll ask Peter... Should Christians be for or against strikes? Oh, man, you're not giving me much space for nuance there. I think, I'll tell you what I do want to do. I want to get Mick Lynch to give me some media training. He is definitely owning the airwaves right now as the head of the RMT. It's a really tough question, I think. In those moments, I'm kind of going maybe to some of the larger biblical themes, like what is a compassionate response So depending on the sectors we're working in, like how are we showing compassion to our neighbour and helping them, but also what does justice require in this moment? Uh, So I think there may be occasions when a strike is justified, when the terms and conditions, the safety, the pay are are so out of kilter uh, that it's really an issue of core injustice. And for Christians, we want to show grace in moments like this. So what does that require? And yeah, you can argue that's a bit of a cop-out, but you've got to look at principles in this moment because every strike's different and every person's situation's different. But I think those are the kind of principles I'd want to look to in the moment of striking. And I've never gone on strike. I think I've nearly always been self-employed. Probably wouldn't get paid, although I think barristers are about to go on strike next week uh, or have gone on strike for the courts. So this is going right across the sectors and it's probably going to come back as a question given the cost of living crisis. So, Peter, you said that wasn't a question of nuance. You extended that answer very well. You gave nuance and balance. Like Thank it very much. I, I'm somewhat sympathetic. I think I'm very much in listening mode in terms of there are individuals particularly, you know, have I been inconvenienced? Yes, I have. I've had to really plan how I get into the office this week or decide not to go into the office and kind of rejig uh, in-person meetings. But there are reasons and real grievances, particularly within the kind of rail transport sector. And the activists in me kind of can empathise. But I think this is a, an important time for the government in terms of really listening, really listening to the concerns, not just of the railways, but there's also earmarks and conversations that the education and teachers union are considering striking. There's conversations about health and increase with kind of, you know, pay increases to kind of reflect the cost of living and inflation. So there's, I can empathise to a degree, and this is definitely be a situation that's going to be rumbling on for the summer into the autumn. Yeah, I, I feel like this touches on some themes that come up again and again in cross-section, where we're weighing up two aspects of a godly character, right? There's the, there's the call for justice and being a people who love justice and and seek justice for other people being advocates and then there's the call to be extremely gracious 
and and humble in everything we do the kind of hard truth is the only person who ever did that really really well was Jesus but hey we're trying to navigate that space that's quite why I like being the person who asks most of the questions and answers less of them (laughs) but let's let's go from one tricky issue to another so last week the first flight due to take due to take asylum seekers from the UK to Rwanda was cancelled minutes before takeoff after legal rulings said that that everyone on that flight couldn't go. Peter, what do you make of the church's response to the Rwanda policy? Well, so the Church of England have been uh, the most vocal, but not the only people speaking, and they've used their position in the House of Lords and their kind of, as the established church, to really push in. And I think they've probably given a really strong collective response in this moment to say, this isn't appropriate, this isn't what we should be doing. They have, uh, if I recall from the letter, raised questions about the legality of the move. They've, they've raised questions about whether it worked practically uh, and the expense involved, but more fundamentally, they've just said, is this morally right? Is this something we should be doing? Uh, so uh, I don't always agree with the Church of England. I think on this one, both uh, it's great to see them speak. I think the church absolutely should be involved in the public square. That should be clear from this podcast. But sometimes people say they shouldn't even be saying anything. And then actually the points that they've raised seem to me to be at least good points to be discussing and they've got the conversation going. So uh, I'd like to see them do more sometimes. But uh, on this one, yep, good job, Church of England, I would generally be saying. Yeah, it is an interesting one. I'd love to yeah. know how they decide what political issues they weigh in and what they don't when how do they decide when they choose to speak up Alicia what do you think well in the case of the Church of England they were heavily involved in kind of uh, the nationality and borders bill in terms of the deliberation committee stage uh, was very much criticizing the government's agenda on, on implementing an offshoring process which this Rwandan policy is part of that but worked out with greater detail the idea that the government could send those seeking asylum to uh, another country with good international human rights law and backing uh, and process their application there so they were very much critical when the nationality and borders bill was in discussion I guess the main critique particularly towards the archbishop um, Justin Welby is that he used his position and the Easter message if we date back and remember that, to talk about the issues of refugees uh, and how the government, this nation, should be a place of sanctuary and should kind of uphold its responsibility, that that's the moral kind of, that's the background of this story. And he's continued with that at every turn. And of course, he received backlash from that. There were government officials that pushed back saying that, you know, the archbishop shouldn't be using his Easter message to talk about politics. Following on from that, there's been another Conservative MP in terms of Lucy Allen, who's a Conservative MP, saying how his position has potentially caused division uh, and alienates parts of the Church of England uh, congregation uh, in taking such a strong political stance. So there's definitely this, this view and feeling that one's personal faith shouldn't have much input on political and policy decisions. I agree with Peter. I don't believe that that is entirely true. And I think the Church of England making a stand on this is great. But then equally, where is their voice on all the other very difficult uh, issues that are based our society and culture at the moment? They don't seem to be pressing out on that. And so whilst I agree with him in this moment that I don't 
agree with the Rwandan policy. It would be great to hear the Church of England talk about more of the hot potatoes uh, of, of the day, linked to sexual identity, kind of relationships, family, divorce, abortion, all of these kind of breadth of issues. Where are they speaking out on these issues as well? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it's it's interesting. Some people are calling for a kind of divide between people's faith and their political views. If you look on the Twitter sphere and you know, it's important to remember everyone's social media, the the algorithm means that everyone sees a different Twitter sphere. But if I look on mine, the the overall opinion is very, very negative towards the Rwanda policy. It's like, how could the government possibly do this to people? And Peter, do you think do you think people's ideas on that is it is it completely divorced from religion? Like, where do people get this concept of what's right and wrong to do in terms of immigration and refugees? Yeah, well, I think you've raised two uh, issues there potentially. Let me take the tangent first. Like, I mean, I, in my Twitter sphere, it seems to be again very much this a bad policy, but there is clear polling saying a lot of people are in, are supportive of it. So I think we've got to wrestle with that and say, well, why is that? And do we need to do better work to explain where we think there's a problem or a challenge to it? But I also think then you've raised this deeper, like this, the separation of church and state at the public level or the privatization of that, which is you can have your faith, but keep it private is just anathema to Christianity. So let's just be clear about that. I just don't see any way we can justify that. Jesus was absolutely the heart of the public square. We see again and again, people in the Bible from Esther to Daniel, all the way through to Paul in front of rulers, they were consistently right at the heart of it. Our faith absolutely affects politics. I mean, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is like a political manifesto. So I just have no credence for any Christian saying that we should keep these separate and, and no credence to anywhere else. That's the classic secularization. Keep your faith if you really must, but keep it over there in a little box, please, out of the way. No way, Jose. I'm, I'm absolutely fundamentally opposed to that if we're not clear on that. So that get, so I, I'm happy for people to take a different view and say, hey, my, my biblical beliefs have driven me to this place. I want to have those conversations. Please, 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 let's not have this idea that they shouldn't be in the public square and that they have no place. Everybody's bringing a worldview to the table. Everybody's bringing a set of ideas and an agenda to the table. I'm very happy to declare my inner frame for the God story. I want to know how other people are framed, how they're getting there, and let's have a great conversation about that. We're all religious beings, as some people say, i.e. we're all driven by a set of ideas and beliefs. And this week is Refugee Week, and uh, I just want to kind of commend to our listeners a report that I've been reading and really processing and digesting is Open Door's new report called Church on the Run, and it looks at internal displaced people and the experience of refugees, and in particular, those Christians that are fleeing persecution. And there's this great understanding where they talk about the four drivers of displacement. Why do people leave their homes, either to another country or, or overseas? And they were talking about how family, both close and intimate as well as extended family, is a driver. They talk about government officials being a reason why people migrate and move. Uh, they talk about um, national citizens, so the local community around them applying pressure and asking them to kind of leave we, or isolating them. And then they talk about violent uh, religious groups and they talk about these differences across different regions. So if you look at Afghanistan, uh, we've got a moment of earthquake now, but we also had kind of the fall and the rise of the Taliban. 
the, the movement of Christians or other people of different faiths, the reason they're leaving their country is because of religious and violent groups uh, that are present. And then go to a different place uh, and say like Nigeria, that has a part to play, but there's also the role of kind of the local community also ostracizing Christians and persecution. So I just want to commend that report to our listeners because it's a great piece of research and it, it helps us understand the wider conversation about global migration. This is an issue that isn't going to disappear or go away uh, in the next couple of years. This is a problem that we need to confront and face for the next generation. Yeah, great. Thanks, Alicia. Open Doors is such a, a brilliant organisation and such a great way for us to get a sense of perspective. And something that I've really been thinking about when it comes to the Rwanda policy is for those listening to this, whichever whichever kind of side you fall on, whether you're sort of for it or against it, I think it's really important as Christians to to listen and try and find out how and why those in opposition to us think to understand the other side. So I'd really encourage anyone to go and, whichever side you fall on, go in and find out everything you can about the opposite view. I really think that'll make us as Christians better at engaging in these sorts of conversations. Interestingly, this week we also had Windrush Day on the 22nd of June. A new monument was unveiled at Waterloo Station of a man, woman and child all holding hands on this pile of suitcases. And I think that that that's it feels interesting at this point in time when we've got this this huge immigration and refugee story going on with Rwanda of of kind of reflecting on the history that we have in the UK of of welcoming in the outsider and but then you get into the complications of were the people of Windrush really welcomed in or did they have to kind of fight for a place any thoughts on that before before we move on just a little curveball I thought I'd throw in there well, as you mentioned, it was uh, a kind of a statue. The Queen's words inscribed that this this monument would inspire present and future generations. And I was just reflecting on the importance of mem- memorialising moments uh, and particularly seeing a biblical imagery in that. So in Joshua 4, the people of, of God have come out of slavery, gone through the, uh, the wilderness and are about to cross the Jordan River and Joshua tells uh, the 12 tribes to go and take a stone and, and place it on the Jordan bank to remember how God has gone before them and I just saw that as a very strong visual of yesterday being a moment where where kind of this government were remembering the Windrush generation Duke of Cambridge said celebrating and honouring them and yet there is a lot of pain and strife in that story many who were wrongly deported, many who experienced traumatic incidences with, with the with the Home Office as a department, the Home Office being called out both journalistically and then years on being challenged through endless reviews through the Wendy Williams uh, Windrush Review and report in, in kind of challenging the Home Office to do better in its immigration policy going forward, not just for Afro-Caribbean and Commonwealth, but also be thinking about the kind of the world we live in, which is about migration and welcoming others from different nationalities. And uh, I'm not entirely sure the UK government, in terms of policymaking, have fully learned uh, the lessons of Windrush and then applying that to practices and policies such as Rwanda or other refugee resettlement pathways. 
Oh, I really hope some of our MPs are listening to Cross-Section and just heard that glorious bit of wisdom you gave us, Alicia. So this is Cross-Section. You can follow us on social media. On Twitter, it's at EA UK News. And on Instagram, it's the Evangelical Alliance because Cross-Section does come out of the Evangelical Alliance. We're a membership organisation. You can become members today right now as you're listening to this podcast if you so wish also please subscribe to this podcast it would be so great so encouraging if you just hit that subscribe button wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts right next story this week FINA swimming's world governing body has voted to stop trans women athletes from competing in women's elite races if they've gone through any part of the process of male puberty Shortly after, International Rugby League came out with a similar statement. World Athletics President Lord Coe hinted that sport could, uh, that athletics could be following. Peter, what do you make of the way that this story has been reported? Uh, Well, I think it's been reported really badly, uh, is is the truth on that. Uh, Even just as you read that, I think that's a lift from the BBC. So it says uh, they voted to stop transgender athletes doing something. What they've done is, in fact, they voted to protect the women's swimming category. Uh, they voted then to explore an open category that trans athletes could be in. Those are two very positive steps, but a lot of the media has framed it as somehow it's stopping something happening rather than looking at the positive. And FINA have gone through, like, so this is the world swimming body, have gone through a, a really uh, extensive process. They've looked at the scientific evidence. They've talked to the athletes. And... I've got two daughters who swim, they're nine and 12, and this is one of the most interesting spaces for me. So my daughter comes in the other time and says, hey, dad, I beat so-and-so, so I a boy. And, they, and when they're training, she will beat a boy on occasion. She will not beat all boys all the time. That's just impossible. You just see the physique. And they're right at the stage of development, going through puberty. She and those in her age bracket. So you see the changes in, in my world uh, very clearly. And uh, so I think actually what they've done is respecting those on the margins because they're going to explore this open category but they are protecting female sport and that is incredibly important there's lots more to say in this wider conversation but i actually think this is a really interesting moment all sport is exclusionary to a degree you always have categories you have weight divisions you have age categories as people are growing up and you have male and female and the reality is an average male athlete will often win or excel in a female category if they're able to enter that so we've got to look at different ways to respect those who are marginalized those who are struggling with issues around gender identity, for sure, but to protect the women's sporting mm-hmm. category. And I think FINA have actually navigated this really well. And I think we'll see other sporting bodies follow suit because they've done it in the right way. They've done all the research, then they put it to a vote and 70 plus percent voted for this. They actually followed an excellent process and it's being badly reported. Yeah, thanks. So that that's that's kind of the mechanics of what's happened. And like you said, there's been a lot of kind of good process, it seems, in that. I think it's really important as Christians, as we follow this story, to to not see it as kind of another bit in the culture war, like maybe the winning of a battle or something like that. It's really important that we nurture compassion towards trans people in this moment. I read a quote this week in Rebecca McLaughlin's new book, A Secular Creed, which is totally brilliant, by the way. I'd really recommend it. But the quote said that body dysphoria is like being cold no matter how many layers you put on. It's like grieving without having anything to grieve. Basically, a totally engulfing sense of frustration. 
And the decisions made this week, although done well, they'll only drive home for many people that their bodies are not as they would like them to be. And that must be really painful. So it's really it's really good for us to acknowledge the kind of suffering that that people that trans people may be feeling right now. Alicia, as as Christians, how or for you as a Christian, how do you reconcile faith and the biblical understanding in these cultural moments and discussions around transgender individuals' inclusion in public life, like work, sport, etc.? Mm, great question. I'm always inspired by Simon Sinek, who's an entrepreneur, and he says, "Know your why." And I feel for a Christian, our why is what is the the biblical narrative, the story in in redemption all about and and the gospel message. And as Christians, our lives are based upon the foundation of of the word. And so whilst this story in FINA seems like a a rights-based conversation, pitting women's rights against trans rights, I feel as Christians, we need to come at this from a a different angle, a different lens and, and coming with that kind of redemptive message that God has come to restore all things and in particular that our body is very part of the redemptive story very much a part of his plan and it just reminds me of my time back in university and at the time of a book that was published by Christopher West which was called Feel These Hearts which talked about God's sex and universal longing and he kind of outworked this John Paul II's theology of the body i.e why is it so important in our physical beings? Why is it so important in, you know, as image bearers? Why does our bodies matter? And particularly around sexual expression. Now, I was kind of came back to faith in 2005. I recommitted my life months before. I'm going back onto a kind of a university campus where sex culture is incredibly rife. uh, And yet there's this, the narrative of celibacy and how to kind of make decisions around purity and sexual integrity is a witness about the strength of the gospel. It's a witness about how God has redeemed all things and my purpose isn't in my sexual expression. And I feel there's something of that conversation that we need to bring about when engaging either politically or reviewing these cultural conversations around trans identity, the importance of the body. I have no understanding or experience personal experience of what it's like to feel you're born into the wrong gender but our message is that there's a redemptive story that God wants to do in and through that Uh, and so yeah that's how I would somewhat engage in this and another book recommendation Nancy Piercy has written a written a book called Love Thy Body which kind of gives a what I call a political apologetic of how to engage in the cultural conversations of our day in terms of abortion assisted suicide, trans identity, sexual orientation and expression, why the body matters so deeply to Christians. So again, we commend that to our listeners. I I think this is a really interesting missional moment, as Alicia says, around this conversation. This is very difficult and this is very real for people, but we've written the resource Transformed and there's a suite of resources on our website around this. But part of the reason is that people are, this, this is a talked about topic. This is in the news a lot. This is something that people are trying to get their heads around and we're trying to understand. I think two things, I absolutely agree with Alyssa on the body piece. Like we have been given bodies. There's no such thing as Pete Linus apart from this body. I am my body. We are, you know, I'm an ensouled body and I'm an embodied soul. 
we're one. But we as Christians haven't always said that very well. We've talked about saving souls as if somehow your soul floats off to heaven when you die and the body doesn't matter. We haven't done a good job thinking about that. So we need to do better. We absolutely need to kind of own that. And then we need to understand the serious level of disconnect for those who experience this. And what is going on in our culture and some of the stories being told, sport to me is like a tipping point, the arrow point of this conversation. And it looks very different when I'm sitting down with somebody who's experiencing this than when we're talking about the kind of concept and idea that I do think is really quite, like needs to be challenged and needs to be engaged, but we've also got to be incredibly pastoral as we sit with people. And finding that balance is very difficult, but I think it's hugely important and actually really is a fascinating, like a really healthy place to be having conversations. We've got to be doing this. Our culture's talking about it. We need to be talking about it. Yeah, that's brilliant. And I think a good point to remind people that cross-section is designed to be a conversation. We would love to hear what you think on this topic. So as I said before, you can tweet us, you can message us on Instagram, or you can email us cross.section at eauk.org. This week, The Telegraph published an article titled Secular Britain is Reviving Christianity's Rituals about how the UK wants to keep some of the traditions of Christianity, but by taking God out of the picture. It was mostly about marking special days in the year, but it got me thinking. I wanted to try something new this week. I've had to convince the rest of the team to do it. We always say the purpose of this podcast is to equip equip Christians to add to the conversations that our peers are having, to understand the world around us and understand how the gospel fits in. So I thought it would be fun if we shared some things in pop culture, TV, films, music that we've been enjoying recently and how the gospel could be a part of that conversation where we see the gospel in it, how we might bring that up with our friends and who knows, you might even get some good recommendations of what to watch or listen to along the way. We did do a little poll as we do every week. We put out, uh, we, we asked people what's their favourite out of This Is Us, Stranger Things and the new Top Gun film Maverick. said This Is Us, 30% said Maverick, but the winner, unsurprisingly, was my choice, which was Strange Things, which I'll come to in a minute. But first, Alicia, can I invite you to have a go at my new little game? Your new little game. So I was the one that mentioned This Is Us. This Is Us, I'm currently watching it on Amazon Amazon Prime. Actually, Telefib, it is on that, but it's also in Disney+. Plus. That's what I'm watching it on. And it's a story about adoption. It's a story about family life. It's a story about grief. And it journeys with this family of five from the moment of birth through uh, childhood, adulthood, and, and, and the tensions of that. And like I said, the language of adoption, two white parents choosing to adopt a young uh, black boy is in America. I think the setting is kind of... When was Vietnam, Peter? I don't want to get my dates wrong. Peter, you'll remember Long time ago. 60s? 70s? So it's set around that era. Oh, that's the kind of the time frame. And so I think it's an incredible story and one that stretches the emotions. It's definitely a tearjerker. If there's current family friction, I wouldn't recommend watching it because it is highly triggering Uh, not just emotional but incredibly jarring and yeah that language and that visual of adoption how we adopted into to God's family so that's the one that I chose and briefly talking about now 
Peter, do you want to have a go next? What have you been watching? Oh recently? man, Top Gun Maverick. So I, uh, <laughs> that's my movie review. I'm not reviewing the movie. It was fun. It was a blast from the past, from the original. And it was, uh, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of action thriller, and uh, it was good to go and see. There's not a lot of kind of strong elements, and I guess there's a, you know, Maverick looks after uh, Goose's son in it. There's a kind of paternal relationship. There's the kind of mentoring of young men getting ready to go into battle. And uh, yeah, I mean, we enjoyed it as a movie. It was it was fun to watch with my daughters talk a bit about the original. And there's always moments in this where you're saying, hey, what's going on there? Or something to pick up and chat about afterwards. I, I want to watch both the things that you've been watching and haven't got around to yet. So I'd probably much rather hear more from you than me talking anymore about Top Gun, which is just me trying to relive my youth. And they switched out the volleyball scene and you play some other crazy game on the beach. So my girls oh, don't want me to do that. So That's about the height of my learning from Top Gun. I don't know. I feel like in Top Gun, there's those themes, you know, they're the, these two men that both want to kind of sacrifice their, their... There's an element of sacrificial love. They want to sacrifice themselves for the other one. When, uh, to be honest, it's hard for me to say much more without it being a spoiler. But I definitely think there's themes that we could pick up on and be like, oh, where... where you know, where can we look for for that kind of sacrificial love in the world today? Where do we see it? For me, I, I've been obsessed with Stranger Things recently. This was a lockdown discovery for me because I'm not I'm not someone who enjoys watching scary things. But I found that if I just cover my eyes for about half of it, I can actually really enjoy a lot of the drama that this later series. So you're reviewing this. <laughs> hey, you know, I still listen to the crunches and the snaps and things with my ears, but. I would say I think there's been a really strong theme. Uh, there's a there's definitely a good versus evil, and this the this series particularly, and this is not a spoiler. There's this evil force who basically gets his victims by using lies, lying to them about who they are, their worth, what they've done, bringing a sense of condemnation. And it just, to me, that was just, there's, there's this whole thing. We've seen Kate Bush's reach number one. That's because her song, Running Up That Hill, is used in the series to pull someone back from these lies, to remind them of, of the reality of who they are. And I just thought that was such a, a reflection of, of bits of the Christian life where we are faced with the devil loves to lie and the gospel is our belt of truth. So I'm not, I'm not, to be honest, I've not yet worked out how I'd bring it into conversation in a totally non-contrived sort of way. But I do think it's good for us as Christians to, as we engage in the world around us, to think, oh, what does the gospel say to this story? Or, or what bit of the gospel is this story pining for? And how can we talk to our friends about that? Alicia, you were going to educate us on drill music. Maybe educate more Peter than you, Joe. I have confidence that you know what <laughs> drill music is. So no, it was a conversation. <laughs> it was a conversation between Nigel Farage today on GMB News with Humes the Engineer, where he was saying Humes the Engineer is a, a drill uh, artist, just for Peter's benefit. And so Nigel Farage was coming out with, you know, I can't stand drill music. Drill music is, you know, the lyrics fuel, you know, street violence, knife crime. It needs to be cut off. I think CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, are now going to use drill videos and music as a part of evidence sessions and kind of part of their prosecution. So it's quite significant. And anyway, the fumes the engineer was saying, drill music is a form of expression. It's a form of art. It's 
young people not or younger generation not saying go and do violence they're talking about their life and reality as is and sadly is in many cases surrounded by knives guns uh and 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 violence and they're not promoting it they're merely mirroring it one piece that i would push out as an album to listen is kendrick lamar's uh which is harsh on years for those who it's an explicit (laughs) rated e so 18 plus is my disclaimer but he's a christian man and he covers incredible themes in this album that talks about grief loss his identity as a follower of christ and yet confronting trauma in his childhood failure in his community and I guess that's that would be my another pitch to the listeners worth listening to. So for the uninitiated, what's drilling is Kendrick Lamar drill? No, Kendrick Lamar is, is rap. Drill yeah. is a style of trap music, Peter, that originates from Chicago. And again, is that kind of music from the streets talking about kind of the, the impoverishment, the poverty, the inequality, both racial and political and socioeconomic. So that's where it was born out of, born out of a, a political movement actually in, in the States and then has then moved over here into the UK. Maybe in a later day. episode, <laughs> maybe in a later episode, I'll get us to analyse a piece of, of news with our own creation of drill music. I think that would be something listeners would enjoy. Wow. wow. This, has been uh, great discussions talking about how we do as Jesus says we be in the world but not of the world how do we engage in the world around us connect it with the gospel the good news of Jesus and think about how we can share that with the people around us Alicia Peter Golden as always we thank Chris at Ringland for doing all our post-production edits and and getting us through to the finishing line this has been cross-section we look forward to seeing you next week Cross-section. Conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture.